0: I'm to find Mark chapter 3 with me, Mark chapter 3, we sing a hymn on a regular basis called, Who Will Follow Jesus? Uh, it's a song that calls for us to stop following our own path, which is what we all want to do in our, in our sort of sinful state, to do what we want, not listen to anyone else. We're called to set that aside. And to walk with Jesus. It's it's a great song. It's hard to find fault with the central message. But I do this morning want to complicate uh, the matter for you a little bit. uh, To complicate what it means to follow Jesus. Because it's not always as simple as follow Jesus. And I say that because in Mark 3 there are all sorts of people following Jesus. Literally following him around. But they're following him for all sorts of different reasons. Some people follow Jesus because they want Jesus to do stuff for them. Some people follow Jesus because they want to trap him, and they want to silence him, and they want to discredit him. Some people follow Jesus because they think he's out of his mind. And some people follow him because they actually want to be his disciple. Lots of people are following Jesus in Mark 3, and for better reasons and for worse reasons. And their motivation for following him always grows out of who they think he is. And so if you think all Jesus is is basically a miracle-working superhero then you're going to follow him for that reason, to find healing, to find access to his power for your own ends. If you think Jesus is out of his mind, you're going to follow him for a different reason. If you think Jesus has a demon, you follow him to put a stop to his evil. So if we'll study the followers of Jesus in Mark 3, my hope is is it'll get us to scrutinize our own following. It'll cause us to ask ourselves, why am I here? What do I hope to find in Jesus? What are my motivations for following him? What exactly do I want out of him? So five kinds of followers in Mark 3. We'll talk through this text. Come down and think about what it means for us. Now, number one, we have the superficial crowds following Jesus. This is verse 7, Mark 3 and verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from uh, beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And so Jesus here is withdrawing from the city, withdrawing from the crowds. You see this especially early on in his ministry. Jesus' impulse, his, his reflexes to withdraw from the thronging crowds. And yet his celebrity has already, already reached a point where he can't even do that successfully because he withdraws to the sea and a great crowd follows the list of places in verses 7 and 8 is, is a pretty comprehensive list of all the major regions of Palestine. It's Mark's way of showing us that Jesus, wherever he went, his popularity boomed. People are coming from all these different parts to see him. And there's a funny thing happening in this text. I think Mark means to make a deliberate and ironic contrast between the crowds who we've just been introduced to and then the demons who will meet in a few verses. So why do the crowds come to Jesus? This is the second half of verse 8 again. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crushed him, for he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And so the crowds are here. They're here for the miracle show. They're here for healing. They're here, I think, I think we can say, for selfish reasons. Now, there might have been people who had other better reasons in addition to those, but they've come, in Mark's telling, for healing. All who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. They don't press around him to hear his message. They don't press around him to hear his solution to their sin problem. What the crowd see in Jesus primarily is sort of a miracle-working superhero. You know what the demons see when they see Jesus? This is verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him... They fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. What do the demons see when they see Jesus? The crowds see a miracle-working superhero. You know what Jesus? the the demons see in Jesus? Well, they mime worship. We could talk about the, the reasons why they might be doing that, but they sort of mime worship. They bow down before him, and they accurately identify him. The irony is the demons have the reaction to Jesus that the crowds should have had. And so you've got here in the beginning of Mark 3, the superficial crowds thronging to Jesus to get their healing. Jesus, it seems, is sort of a means to an end, that in him they see the solution to their earthly problems. And what they need to learn is what the demons already know. You are the Son of God. That brings us to verse 13, and what I'm going to call the infantile Apostles. So in verse 7, he is withdrawn to the sea, and a great crowd follows. He then withdraws to a boat, lest they crush him. And now in verse 13, he withdraws again, this time to a mountain. Verse 13. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom... Uh, he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You know, the mountain, like, uh, like the wilderness, like several geographical features, the mountain is an important motif in Scripture, an important location. It's it's a place of solitude, often. Uh, It's a place where God often reveals himself or gives instructions to his people on mountains. Uh, Moses comes to mind, the burning bush, Sinai, Zion, the Sermon on the Mount. The 12 tribes of Israel were constituted on a mountain. And Jesus goes on this mountain, essentially, to constitute the new Israel around a new 12. For centuries, Israel has been in exile. They've been in disarray. They've been scattered. They've been oppressed. They've been absorbed by these world empires. What's getting ready to happen is God is getting ready to gather his people for sort of a new exodus, a new constituting of a new Israel. The mission of the 12, verse 14, is that they may be with him, that he might send them out to preach, and that they might have authority to cast out demons. And the first of those three tasks is really what the rest of the Gospels are about, that they be with him. Their first mission is to follow Jesus around, to learn from him, to figure out exactly who he is, and to figure out exactly what he's here to do. They are here to follow him. Now, as we look through the list, I think one thing we are impressed with is this, that beginning to follow Jesus is not the same thing as fully following him or maturely following him. Just because you've decided to become a disciple, just because Jesus has chosen you for a special task, does not mean you understand everything you need to understand. does not mean you embody all the virtues you must embody. It does not mean you are ready to do and to be everything, wants you to, everything Jesus wants you to do and to be. So we're introduced, first of all, to Peter, but not as Peter, but rather as his birth name, Simon. And what that name change reminds us of is a character change that occurs in this man. Peter didn't come to Jesus as new Peter. He came to Jesus as old Simon. Old Simon, who doesn't understand Jesus' mission, who in a few chapters will rebuke Jesus when Jesus says he's come to die, and he'll start saying, no, you won't. Peter, who's quick to put his foot in his mouth. Simon, who's full of bluster and yet lacks courage at a crucial moment. Here's a man who's begun to follow Jesus in Mark 3, but if you read the rest of Mark, you find this man is a spiritual infant in many ways. Jesus gives the the brothers James and John a nickname, calls them sons of thunder, turn out to be an appropriate nickname because they are fiery and impulsive at times. I'm thinking of Luke 9 where they ask permission from Jesus to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan town. Followers of Jesus, yes. Mature disciples with the love of Christ as their guiding light, not yet. And then you've got that last name on the list, which reveals to us That this maturation process the apostles are going to undergo, this maturation process is in no way inevitable for any of them. It's not just a countdown. You become a disciple, this amount of time elapses, and now you reach maturity. That is not inevitable. Beginning to follow ensures nothing about the future. Starting the race and finishing finishing the race are not the same thing. Judas comes to Jesus as immature as all the rest, I think. And then he stays that way. Or maybe we could even say it gets worse. Jesus intends for his work to carry on. That's what he's saying through the apostles. That's what they will do. He doesn't just want his magnetic presence, his celebrity attraction, to be the the thing that brings people to God. He calls these men to follow him and to learn from him. And this is a long and arduous process of growing from infancy to maturity, and only after that process will they be ready to carry out his work. They are following Jesus. That doesn't mean they've arrived at maturity. We come to verse 20, to Jesus' suspicious family. Now, an interesting thing about the Gospel of Mark is that Mark gives no family background of Jesus. There's no birth narrative in the Gospel of Mark. Um, There's no call to Mary that she will bear a son. There's no talk of Jesus' childhood in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark, Jesus sort sort of shows up in the wilderness to be baptized one day, And then he starts his ministry and he's already an adult. This is our first introduction to Jesus' family in the Gospel of Mark. And it's it's probably not what you would expect. This is verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now, the home Jesus arrives at in verse 20 probably refers to Simon and Andrew's home in Capernaum. Um, that's sort of the home base we learn in chapter 2. And, and in this home, the crowds are so thick, it says, they could not even eat. The, the sheer amount of people uh, couldn't be turned away. They're pressing in. They're crowding the house. They can't even sit down and eat a meal. Well, Jesus' own family hears of Jesus' presence at this house, and it says they come to seize him. They want to drag him back to their home in Nazareth, and they want to put a stop to all this nonsense he's involved in. And the reason is because they say he is out of his mind. Jesus' fame has spread all around. They've obviously heard about it, and whatever they've heard, they're really not buying it. He is out of his mind. If you read John 7, he specifically notes there the unbelief of Jesus' brothers. They're not buying anything of what he says early on in his ministry. Now, there's a lot about this I don't know. I've it, it, got to say, it's hard to imagine Mary embodying this unbelief, this he's out of his mind attitude. She's the one who was told by God the identity and mission of Jesus before he's even born. She knows before anyone. Yet at the same time, you know, it'd be a mistake to immediately conclude, well, since Mary knew the right information at one point in time, that means she never had any doubt. It doesn't mean that for us, and I don't think it meant that for her. Even if she didn't doubt Jesus' sanity, Perhaps you wanted Jesus to reel it in a little bit. You know this is getting out of hand. Just come home for a while. Let this die down. And so we see really in, in the illustration of the proverb. It's a proverb for a reason. A prophet is not without without honor except in his own country, and in Jesus' case, except in his own home. It's hard to be taken seriously as an adult around people who remember you when you were in diapers. Jesus' sense of mission, the crowds that follow him, the miracles he worked, the disciples who followed, Jesus' family sees all of this and they say, this is crazy. And so these followers of Jesus, they come to this house all right, but they remind us that all the connections in the world did not a disciple make. The fact that some people were relatives of the Messiah did not mean that they understood Jesus and followed him well, at least not for a while. Which brings us to Verse 22. Another group that follows Jesus are the blasphemous scribes. So the scribes are are sort of the legal experts. Their job literally was to steward the word of God, to write it, to inscribe it. They were familiar with it. They were respected as authorities who knew about the word of God. And when they hear about Jesus following here, they're alarmed that someone is speaking with such authority of this word of God, which they themselves Saw, saw themselves to be as the uh, the authorities on, and so they come in verse 22 to undermine Jesus and his work. This is verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, "He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons." And he called them to him and said to them in parables, "How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand." And if the house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And so the scribes, it seems, have already made up their minds about Jesus. They already have a a stance on him and, and have a mission. Now, I do think it's interesting what they do not do and what they do not say when they come to Jesus. Do they come and do they try to discredit him this way? Well... Jesus doesn't really have power. He's not really casting out demons. You know, these demon-possessed people are clearly just plants in the audience, like sort of a televangelist ruse. No, the power Jesus displays is undeniable. They do not say that. Instead, they brand Jesus' power as being enabled by the demonic realm. They say he's no Messiah, he's no prophet. He's actually a sorcerer using dark power. And I think this charge stuck in the minds of many. We have some extra-biblical sources that describe Jesus being killed because he was accused of sorcery. So that accusation sort of hung around. Well, Jesus answers the charge with basic logic in verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? If what you say is true, if I'm casting out demons to the power of demons, what exactly are you saying is happening in the spiritual realm? That there's some sort of demonic civil war? That Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. In which case, if you're right, if your charge is true, Satan is fighting against himself. Is that what you're saying? Which means his kingdom is coming apart at the seams. Is that what you're saying? Clearly, that's, that's not the case, he says. Because Satan still does have power. People are still possessed by demons. He has still enslaved mankind with sin. What you're saying cannot be true. It just doesn't make logical sense. Here's what is happening, Verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So in this analogy, Satan is, is a strong man, a strong man in, in his house. And Satan is strong. He enslaves men through sin, through demon possession, through disease, through death. The demons are being used as his servants in his destructive work. Satan would never willingly allow himself to be defeated. He's too strong, He's too smart for that. So if Satan is being defeated, if Satan is taking blows, what that must mean is that someone against him and someone stronger than him has come. What Jesus says in verse 27 is that's exactly what I am doing. I am the one stronger than Satan, and my exorcisms are evidence that I am stronger than Satan and I am actively working to defeat him. The heart of my mission is to confront Satan, to crush Satan, and to rescue people from his grip. And then in verse 28, he turns his attention to what this ridiculous accusation says about the ones making the accusation. He says, let's let's talk about the real issue. And it's not about me and where I get my power from. The real issue is, why in the world you would say that, knowing everything that you know? Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying... He has an unclean spirit. I'm not going to belabor this uh, passage here. Uh, That's because we've talked about this passage in two Q&A nights, two separate Q&A nights. The second second one was better than the first one, but uh, very briefly I will say what's happening. Faced with the undeniable power of Jesus and faced with his airtight logic that he cannot have exercised this power through the agency of Satan, faced with all of this, These scribes still say, in verse 30, he has an unclean spirit. And so whatever it is that's happening with them, it's not a sin of ignorance, where they just didn't have enough information about Jesus yet. It's not that. It is a sin of outright, willful rebellion, where seeing Jesus with their own eyes, they insist on calling him a demon. In reality, Jesus is here to free people from the power of Satan, but they insist on calling him Satan. They are openly saying a man with God's Holy Spirit actually has an unclean spirit. So do you want to know what the unforgivable sin is? The sin there's no coming back from? It is a hard-heartedness that deliberately attributes the Holy Spirit's work to an unclean spirit. It is an attitude toward Jesus that says, it doesn't matter what you do, and it doesn't matter what you say, I will not call you Lord under any circumstance." If that's the course of your life, you are committing a blasphemy that will not be forgiven in judgment. There is no hope for the one who willfully rejects Jesus. That's essentially this essentially sin. And I want to point out one more time the contrast throughout this chapter between what Jesus' own family says about him, between what the scribes say about him, and between what the demons say about him. Verse 21 his family heard if they went out to seize him, for they're saying he's out of his mind. That's his family. He's out of his mind. Verse 22, the scribes came down from Jerusalem saying he's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. That's the scribes. And then remember those old demons in verse 11, who fell down before him and cried, you are the son of God. The only ones to confess the truth about Jesus, the only ones to call him what he really is, is the demons. His family thinks he's crazy. The scribes call him a demon, and the demons themselves are the ones who really recognize him. If it weren't so sad, it'd almost be funny. And so all of these lesser reasons, all of these, uh, these bad reasons for following Jesus finally pay off in verse 31, when Jesus reveals his true family, the true follower, the one he wants. It seems in, in verse 31, Mark has sort of resumed the sequence of events he began in verse 21, Jesus' family seeking him out, uh, not to become his disciples but to seize him. They're saying he's out of his mind. He sort of picks up that scene again in verse 31. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and sister and mother. So again, they're in this house that's so thronged with people, Jesus can't even sit down to eat. And so when his mother and his brothers reach the house, they can't even get in. They can't even see Jesus, I think. Um, And so what I imagine is word sort of is passed up the crowd from person to person that Jesus' family is here and is looking for him. And Jesus doesn't even send an answer back to them. doesn't even send a message. Instead, he seizes on this interruption as a teaching opportunity. And he invites them to think differently about who his relatives are. Who are my real mother and brother and sisters? And he gestures to those sitting around him, maybe to the 12, maybe to more. And he says, you know what? These, this is my real family. And then he broadens it out even further. Not just the people sitting around me in this house, but verse 35, whoever does in the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. Kinship with Jesus is not established by your bloodline. It's established by following Jesus and doing his will. You know, sometimes we say you can't choose your family, which is true in an earthly sense. Well, in Jesus' family, it is only made up of people who have chosen to be related to him. That's all Jesus' family is. People who have chosen to be in it. Now, maybe this interaction strikes us as a little insensitive. Jesus says, you know, I don't want to see my own family. They're not my family anyway. I think we should say Jesus isn't talking like a petulant teenager saying, you know, I wish you weren't my mom or something like that. Um, later on in Mark, in Mark 7, he'll quote from the law of Moses about honoring one's parents, which Jesus did, even from the cross. But I do think it's very important Jesus answered this situation this way. He sets this tone early on. No one gets special treatment in the kingdom of God. It says this about lots of people, not rich folks, not powerful folks, not certain races of folks, not James and John when they ask for the right and left hands in the kingdom, and not even Jesus' kin. God is no respecter of persons, even when those persons are Jesus on flesh and blood. If Jesus' mother, if, if his literal mother and brothers want to be truly his mother and his brothers, they will become that the way the rest of us will. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister, And mothers, and to their credit, by the way, the rest of the New Testament records that happening with Jesus' own literal brothers like James. So in Mark 3, everyone who follows Jesus does so for wildly different reasons. The thronging crowds follow Jesus for his miracles. His family follows him to seize him because they think he's out of his mind. The scribes follow him to try to discredit him and trap him. The apostles follow Jesus. They do it in fits and starts. They do it imperfectly. They do it immaturely, but learning. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus says, here is my true family. Here's who my true followers are. Do the will of God. Take up your cross and follow me. That's the kind of follower I want. I think in a very literal way, this chapter is saying, just because you're following Jesus around doesn't mean you're really following him. Not all following is created equal. Only if you're following him with the intention of doing his will and the will of the Father, only then are you truly his follower and truly his family. Which should cause us to ask, why am I following Jesus? What does my following actually mean? What is it motivated by? Why exactly am I involved with Jesus? Why exactly do I go to church? Why exactly do I do that religious stuff? What deep down is my true motivation? What am I really after? Am I just following him superficially? Am I following him like the crowds because I want to use him, because I think he's useful, hoping a little church going will improve my chances of answered prayer? Do I just pray in his name, not because I I want to draw closer to him and understand him and do his will, but do I just pray in his name because something has gone wrong in my life and I want it fixed? Am I following him out of sort of a dull habit, do I do whatever following I do because I just want to, want to sort of avoid making waves in my family and, and have the drama that a break with Jesus that is really happening in my heart? If that becomes obvious to everyone, I just don't want to do that. Am I following Jesus because that's just what I've always done? There have also been those who follow Jesus, like the scribes, as sort of wolves in sheep's clothing, who seek to discredit Jesus and undermine him and just simply seek power and influence over other people. Jesus says, there's only one kind of follower I'm interested in. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Or as the hymn goes, who will follow Jesus? Who will make reply? I am on the Lord's side. Master, here am I. Jesus says, you are ready to follow me like that? Maybe you're here this morning. You realize you are not here for that reason. You're here for some other reason, some superficial reason, some nefarious reason. Whatever the case, Jesus says, come and repent and really start following me, and you will be a part of my family. If you would like to do that this morning, come now with your stand and sing.
1: Someday you'll stand <clears throat> at the bar, night. someday your record you'll see. Someday you'll answer the question of
0: life, what will your
1: answer be? What will it be, what will it be where we you spend your eternity? What will it be, oh what will it be? o'clock. Let's all make our best efforts to be back here.